Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is the audio of our monthly seminar. Subscribe and support this programming at patreon.com slash the socialist program to join live once a month and ask Brian Becker your questions and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thanks so much for your help in keeping this independent show going. We can make this program with you, but not without you. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. Good turnout here again for our monthly seminar. Well, they're not monthly anymore. We're we're increasing the number of patrons-only seminars. And again, we can't do it without the patrons. We say that over and over again, but it's absolutely true. It's not only you know a great deal of work to do the show and to produce this level of content, but you know it costs quite a bit of money to produce it. And we don't do any advertising. And we try to provide as much free content as possible, not behind a paywall. But again, we have to raise money. We can't do this show without finances. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people we know who are regular listeners to the show. And they're not patrons. And we understand, you know, people are in different points in their life and different financial responsibilities or hardships. But whoever can please do consider becoming a patron. Show your support for the show. This is, in fact, a collective effort. I'm the host of the show, but without the sound engineer, there's no show. Without the producers, no show. Without the guests, no show. And without the studios that we're able to use and the equipment. So all of it requires a social collective effort. And that also means having to have sufficient funds. So again, thank you to all of you who are patrons. Great to be with you again. And I want to be able to answer questions and interact with people. I want to start on the anti-war movement. I think many of you are aware that the Answer Coalition, along with a large number of organizations, more than 100 organizations have come together now to sponsor a protest on March 18th, which is the weekend marking the 20th anniversary, can't believe it in a way, the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. 20 years ago, on March 19th, really March 20th, Iraqi time, March 19th, U.S. time, the U.S. launched the shock and awe invasion. And those of us who are old enough don't really need to go over all that history. We can remember it well. But I do want to emphasize some elements of that invasion because Bush and the Pentagon coined it shock and awe. Shock and awe was the language used by slave owners in South Carolina to awe enslaved people in the event that they might be considering becoming free people or rising up. So this the shock and awe is the language of terror. It's the language of terror, of ultimate, maximum, comprehensive intimidation. You don't usually use language like that if your mission is liberation, if your mission is to emancipate and oppress people. It was obviously designed to scare the Iraqi people and to make them understand that if they resisted, that they would die. And just like the U.S. did in 1991 in that first Gulf War, where I was also one of the organizers of an anti-war movement, a very substantial anti-war movement at that time, not as substantial as 2003. But the U.S. at that time bombed the electric grid, bombed the sewage system, bombed the water system. These were systems in Baghdad. Baghdad is not close to the, to the area that Iraq had occupied. Kuwait was like far, far away from Baghdad. 
But the U.S. took the battle right to Baghdad because it wanted to cripple Iraq. And it wanted, as one of the generals sort of inadvertently said, we wanted to carry out a bombing campaign that would supplement sanctions, meaning if you deprive a people of that which they need to sustain life in a modern society, technology, industrial goods, food, water, drinkable water, sanitation services, electricity, if you can destroy with bombs the core elements of a society's system, and Iraq had no air defenses at all in 2003, then the sanctions, the impact of sanctions are maximized. And that was the case in 1991 as well. So the U.S. had this policy basically to destroy Iraq from 1991 until 2003. I was in Iraq multiple times in the late 1990s because we were bringing medicine to Iraq. We were openly carrying out this international civil disobedience campaign to show that the sanctions were a form of slow motion genocide. And we wanted people, the American people basically didn't know about sanctions or if they had heard about them, they didn't know what the consequences were. So we were going back and forth to Iraq, bringing medicine. And, and I've said this before in the show, I was in Iraq in December, 1998, when the Clinton administration announced Operation Desert Fox, which is the same language that the Nazis used for their North Africa campaign, coincidentally. But that they dropped a thousand bombs and missiles on Iraq between December 12th and 16th. And I was there and I left on December 11th. The Iraqis came to our delegation and said, look, we can't protect you. We couldn't fly out of Iraq because it was a no-fly zone. So we actually drove through the desert which was about an 18-hour-long drive through the desert to Amman, Jordan, where we could fly out. And the U.S., you know, just bombed the country over and over again for four days. You know, just think about the level of aggression. I mean, here's the same U.S. media that's talking all the time about Russia's invasion into Ukraine. and, And there's never any emotion. There's never any sort of condemnation of what the government in the United States did to the people of Iraq. I mean, it wasn't only Iraq. I mean, there was also happened in Libya and the U.S. used proxies to do it and direct U.S. intervention in Syria too. And there have been many other places. But the magnitude of the violence in Iraq, it's hard to equate with that. And there's no, you know, this wasn't like a country on the United States border, like Ukraine is on Russia's border and NATO was expanding into Russia's neighbor and putting advanced weapons in Ukraine. I mean, Iraq was thousands of miles away. It obviously posed no threat at all to the people of the United States. Everything about weapons of mass destruction they knew was BS. I mean, the idea later that they were shocked and mortified that there weren't weapons of mass destruction, that there was an intelligence failure, that's all BS. That's like anybody who was following the situation knew that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. The reason we could tell is that there were 13,000 weapons inspections carried out by UN weapons inspectors led by the United States over all of Iraq for many, many years. And Iraq was surrounded. It had no capacity to menace or threaten anybody. The whole thing was a fraud. And here we are 20 years later, Where's the big discussion in the media about 
the legacy of the invasion of Iraq. I mean, there was no ISIS before the U.S. invaded Iraq. There was no ISIS. Al-Qaeda was not a thing in Iraq. I mean, you know, love it or loathe it, I don't know of anybody loving it, but whatever you think about the Saddam Hussein government, it was an enemy of Al-Qaeda. It certainly wouldn't have allowed Al-Qaeda to take root. Al-Qaeda takes root because of the U.S. invasion in Iraq and then morphs into ISIS and then captures a big part of Iraq and Syria and all of the the destruction that's taken place in Iraq and in Syria. I mean, more than a million people have died who would not have otherwise died, according to the Lancet Medical Journal. And ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the the rise of these extremist right-wing religious forces, it's not simply about killing people. It's about the rights of women. I mean, the U.S. says it cares so much about the rights of women in Afghanistan or in Iran. I mean, the first time I went to Iraq in 1990, I went with that delegation that I led with Muhammad Ali. I mean, women could dress as they wanted. They could go wherever they wanted. They could go by themselves as single women to a club or to a a restaurant or a bar. I mean, there was free education. There was free health care. It was basically a political dictatorship on top of a social democratic framework. All of that has been destroyed. So it's not only the death and destruction of people, it's also the destruction of something that was relatively very progressive in the Middle East, and that's gone. And then that whole time, the U.S. also was waging war in Afghanistan for 20 years before it was clear that they could not succeed, and then they left. And now the Taliban is the government again in Afghanistan, and people are literally starving to death. The U.S. spent trillions of dollars on Iraq and Afghanistan. We are coming to the 20th anniversary of something very momentous, and there's almost no talk about it, no lessons learned, no ruminations about the thing. George W. Bush is a free man. He's not in jail. Same with Dick Cheney. Same with the rest of them. Anyway, on March 18th, we're going to have a really significant demonstration. There's going to be a veterans contingent, by the way. Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans are going to be marching against war with us on March 18th. There's going to be an environmental contingent. By the way, the Pentagon is the by far the single biggest institutional contributor to climate catastrophe and global warming. There's going to be an artists and cultural workers contingent. We're going to have people from all over the place coming together to march to say no to endless U.S. wars. And by endless U.S. wars, I mean the U.S. is still occupying Iraq, still occupying Syria, and escalating the war in Ukraine, refusing to actually negotiate. The U.S. doesn't want a negotiated settlement in Ukraine because they think over time Russia will weaken. It hasn't so far. I mean, not that we can see anyway. I mean, there have been economic hardships because of the sanctions, but Russia is not winning the war, but neither is Ukraine. But for the U.S., for the military-industrial complex, it's great business. And the U.S. feels, look, there's no real blowback at home because it's not Americans dying. It's Ukrainians and Russians dying, but it's really their war. There's no way Ukraine could have launched these counteroffensives successfully except for the fact that U.S. weapons— 
U.S. technology, U.S. intelligence, and U.S. military leadership is actually calling the shots in the war against Russia. So anyway, we're going to be marching together on March 18th. There will be some sister actions in San Francisco and Los Angeles. All the nearby cities are coming to Washington, D.C. Further away places may do their own action. But, of course, it's not going to be like we're not going to have millions of people in the streets because, again, the Americans are not dying in Ukraine. If the Biden administration said the, the Russian aggression in Ukraine is so bad, we must send U.S. troops there to fight, you know, millions of people would like, no, we don't want another war, now a major war with a major power. They wouldn't want a war like Iraq or Afghanistan. But the Biden administration is not testing that. But nonetheless, step by step by step, we're moving in a, towards a confrontation between the United States and Russia and the United States and China. And we're moving, you know, without political blowback of a sufficient type in the United States, all the more reason why we have to keep building this anti-war movement. The other parts of the demonstration on March 18th is we're going to stand with the Palestinian people. This is an extension of American dominance and power and hegemony in the Middle East. The crimes being committed by the Israeli government against the Palestinian people are accelerating the tendency towards another major war. But even short of that, there's daily violence being perpetrated against the Palestinians. We're going to stand with Palestine and show that the struggle for Palestinian self-determination and Palestinian freedom has to be connected to all of the other movements for social justice and peace and self-determination. So we're going to be standing against sanctions, the imposition of sanctions by the U.S. on Cuba and Venezuela and other countries standing with Palestine, standing against the occupation of Middle Eastern countries and demanding peace in Ukraine rather than an escalation. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area on that weekend, join us March 18th. We're going to be meeting at the White House. The rally will start at one o'clock. We'll have a march. Anyway, Nicole, I want to be able to take other people's questions, but this is a time to act, everyone. There were bigger demonstrations in Europe over the last few days. Again, it's not going to be like what we had on January 18, 2003, where we had a half a million people on the mall. And it's not going to be like February 15th. 2003, where maybe 35 million people around the world came into the streets on the same day. But, you know, mass movements don't start all at once. They start by taking smaller steps. And this is going to be a smaller step, but it's a very significant step. And a lot of people are coming. So I'll leave it there, Nicole, and then let's open it up for questions. That's all for this preview. If you'd like access to the rest of this seminar and our entire archive of exclusive seminars with Brian Becker, become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We are an independent show and we cannot make this programming without you. Thanks so much for your support. 